Today's Old Testament reading comes from the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Mennonites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazalan, Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Sire, whose territory you are not allowed Excuse me, you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jahaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Baniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Tziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance of the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa, 
As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament readings come from Luke chapter 3 and the beginning of 4 as well as Matthew chapter 11. Let's follow along together in your bulletins. First from Luke chapter 3. Luke writes, When all the people were being baptized, as by John the Baptist, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. In verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And then let me invite you, as we've been doing during this series, for Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, to perhaps close your eyes, open your, the palms of your hands if you would like, get comfortable enough to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus as he speaks these tender, inviting words over you. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fasting. The sixth of our seven disciplines of discipleship that we're studying this Lenten season. Why fast? Why fast? I'm going to take like a a golfer that goes up to the the tee box and seems to take forever getting his grip on his club and waggling a little bit and getting comfortable. It'll seem like I'm doing that a little bit at the beginning here, but let me back up and give you some context for why we might fast. For six days, at the beginning of creation, at the beginning of our Bibles, God took the chaos and the formlessness of matter, light and water and dirt. And God crafted this matter into things that were good and beautiful. He created our world. So God brought order and beauty, and God then 
at the pinnacle of this orderliness and beautification he made you and me in his image. That means that from the beginning, God was at work cultivating truth and goodness and beauty, and then as he made creatures in his image, he commissioned them to be workers as well. We are created to work for truth and goodness and beauty. But not just to work, but also to celebrate the work that we've done, to feast. So the seventh day is a day of rest, and that's not just to recharge our batteries, but actually to delight in what has been done those first six days. So we tend the vines for six days, and on the seventh day we get to drink the fruit of the vine. Why do we feast? We feast because feasting is the natural response to what is good and true and beautiful. When you accomplish something, you call your friends and you celebrate, right? When you get to the end of a week of work, you meet up for a fire robin beer, at least you used to. You harvest, and then what do you have? You have a harvest festival. Uh, I've been anxiously, I'm a book nerd, right? So I've been anxiously awaiting the release of the authorized biography of one of me and Sam's heroes, Eugene Peterson, which, by the way, I need to order you a copy if you don't have one. Um, Wynn Collier spent the last two years of Peterson's life interviewing him, exchanging letters with him, learning about his life. And then Peterson died, and he spent the next two years writing and editing this magisterial biography of this, to me and Sam anyway, a father in the face, in the faith. And this book was released on Tuesday. What is the natural response when somebody who bears God's image works hard and then brings a good work to fruition? The natural response is that you want to celebrate, you want to feast. And so in the middle of the night on Tuesday, I guess it would have been Wednesday morning, I got on Zoom and I joined 300 people from around the world to celebrate the release of this book with the author. And the author invited a gospel singer and the son of Eugene Peterson for an interview. There was conversation and music and art and beauty. There was a feast, even though it was on Zoom. Feasting is the natural response when good work has turned into beauty. But this sermon, next week's sermon, is about feasting, Easter. The subject this week is about a different discipline of discipleship. This isn't Easter, this is the beginning of Holy Week. And we need to talk about fasting. So if feasting is our natural response when good work has been turned into beauty, then guess what fasting is? Fasting is our natural response when evil has brought about brokenness in the place where beauty belongs. Let me say that again. Fasting is our natural response when evil has brought about brokenness in the place where beauty belongs. Take the story of Jehoshaphat, which Heather very, uh, where are you, Heather, where you adeptly read in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 20. Uh, thank you for your perseverance in that difficult text. Here's the king of Judah, southern kingdom. And unlike many kings, he's walking in the ways of his ancestor David. He's seeking to restore truth and goodness and beauty in his kingdom. He's going to do the job of a king. 
And he's trying to turn the hearts, the text says earlier, of the people from idols back to the true God. He sends out in the Sabbath year teachers into all the towns of Judah to bless them with truth and goodness and beauty. He observes and celebrates that sabbatical year. See what he's doing. He wants to see something of the kingdom of God instead of chaos in the southern kingdom. And so in the image of God, he takes the raw material of his realm and he tries to turn it into something that's just a little bit more good, true and beautiful and therefore honoring to God and good for us. But then while he's doing all of this good, this is where Heather's reading picked up, Moab and some other local nations banded together in an alliance and planned an assault on Judah. So there's an eruption of evil on the horizon, threatening to bring about brokenness in the place where poor Jehoshaphat is trying with all of his might to bring about beauty and renewal. And what is Jehoshaphat's response to this? His response to this pending calamity, this destruction of beauty, is to fast. And, in fact, to call all of Judah, whose hearts he had been turning back to the Lord, remember? To turn now their stomachs, as it were, away from food together, and turn both their hearts and their bodies, therefore, together toward the face of the Lord. Uh, Scott McKnight, who I rely on a lot in this sermon, he says that fasting is the natural thing to do when evil breaks out and beauty is threatened by brokenness. So when someone dies, why do people immediately make casseroles uh, and bring refrigerators worth of food over to the family's house? Well, obviously, because people who are grieved in the face of death, they don't have the desire or the energy to eat, much less to go to the kitchen and to cook for themselves. And so you bring them food so they don't have to do all of that. Eating is such a normal part of our lives, but when grief strikes, when something traumatic or evil occurs, then it feels, doesn't it? It feels wrong and improper almost to just go about our routines, breakfast, lunch, mid-afternoon snack, tea time, dinner. It feels wrong, almost disgusting to eat in the face of evil. How can I eat when my husband, when my wife just died? How can I make dinner when the doctor has just given me this dreadful diagnosis? How can we just swing through McDonald's for a burger and fries when terrorists have just attacked the Twin Towers? Why is fasting a discipline of discipleship? Because fasting tunes our bodies and our hearts to the broken heart of God in the face of broken beauty. Now, many times in the scriptures, there's an awkward term for fasting. When people fast, it is called affliction. People afflict themselves with a fast. What is that all about? I think it means this. Food repairs our bodies, right? Returns to our bodies what has been depleted. But when disaster or disease or death strikes and it breaks our hearts, then 
we respond in both heart and body. Because we're whole people, heart and body. When sin destroys something in ourselves, in our friends, even in our enemies, in our world around us, then it's natural to respond, not just with a broken heart, but with a broken body as well. When the work of God and the work of God's image bearers is undone and broken, then we afflict ourselves, at least the Bible people did, with a fast so that our bodies are afflicted in the same way that our hearts are afflicted. So we can be whole people, bodies and souls as well. When our spirits are grieved, it's the most natural thing in the world to grieve in our bodies as well. Fasting is a discipline of discipleship uh, by pausing the bodily repair that food brings to us. Then we pause long enough to enter into the very grief of God. And in doing so, we tune both our hearts and our bodies to the broken heart of the Lord over the brokenness of his good and beautiful world. Now, in the Bible, there are some extreme fasts. Moses and Elijah and Jesus all fast for 40 days. But that's not the only way to fast, of course. By the time of Jesus, it was the Jewish custom to enter into a regular rhythm of fasting. Mondays and Thursdays, the Jews would fast. So from dinner on Sunday night, the Jews would then not eat until maybe lunch or dinner on Monday. They did the same thing from Wednesday night until lunch or dinner on Thursday. So in in essence, they skipped one or maybe two meals twice a week. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, interestingly, don't fast much together. And in fact, people think they must not be very serious about the kingdom of God because they're not fasting like John and his disciples. Hint, they're actually feasting. (laughs) They're feasting. And Jesus says, nevertheless... When my days are done on earth and I go away from you, then my disciples will return to their regular fasts. And then sure enough, the earliest Christians, yeah, they feasted on Sundays, the resurrection day, but on Wednesdays and Fridays, they set aside their food so that they could set aside their hearts to grieve the brokenness that they saw in themselves, in others, and in the world all around them. So they gave up the repair of their bodies just by skipping a few meals in order to enter both body and soul into the grief that they saw even in Jesus over his broken world that needs repair. Last week we talked about giving and in many ways fasting and giving are similar. They run in parallel to each other. Sure, there are regular times of giving. The offering basket goes through the congregation every Sunday. It's normal and natural and good for us to give rhythmically, to give regularly, right? That's part of the discipline of giving. But the other aspect, as we saw last week, is to be prepared to give spontaneously and naturally when the call, when the opportunity arises. And the same here is true with fasting. Jesus assumes that we're going to fast We're going to fast at regular times. Why? Not to look better, not to shed a few pounds, not to detox as 
I've tried to do a couple of times. Not to have control over something, but to intentionally enter, as we've been saying, into the godly grief over the world's brokenness. But the other aspect of fasting and its discipline is that we would spontaneously respond to the threat and the destruction of truth and goodness and beauty around us by bringing our bodies and hearts together to meet Jesus in his grief. So when death comes to steal and destroy, as it does, it is Christian to refuse a couple of meals. When another unarmed black man is killed by another American cop, it's natural to lie in the dust, to shed tears, to refuse a few meals. When the 10,000th person dies of the coronavirus in Switzerland, which will happen in the next couple of weeks, it seems, then it will be the most natural thing in the world to mourn, to marry our hearts to God's heart, and to replace a couple of our meals with tears and with prayer. Fasting is a discipline, and all disciplines involve both regular training in a rhythm and spontaneous responses to what's going on around us. And then there's just one more thing. I mean, there's lots that we could say about fasting, and actually Sam is our resident expert, so tune into the podcast episode in a couple of weeks to hear the actual expert talk about about fasting in a practical way. But I need to say one more thing about fasting before we conclude. And it's the same thing that we've been saying about all these other disciplines of discipleship, about giving, Sabbath, study, silence, solitude, simplicity. The discipline of fasting is not designed for you to impress God with your religious performance. Do you understand that? This is crucial. The disciplines of discipleship are designed to draw you near heart and body to the heart of God so that your whole spirit and soul and body are brought day by day, moment by moment, into a closer communion with Christ. You might, as Jehoshaphat did, you might pray for something and fast along with those prayers. David prayed for the health and the life of his son. Jehoshaphat and Judah prayed for protection against these foreign armies. But your fasting cannot control God's mysterious ways and his providence. Fasting is not a performance for God where we show him how serious we are and get him on the hook to do what we want him to do for us. Rather, it's this practice of whole-bodied and whole-souled, ultimately, submission to God and his ways. Fasting and the prayer that goes with it brings us to the place where we grieve brokenness and where we want more than anything else, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, than for God's goodness to be seen again in the place of evil and brokenness. So today is Palm Sunday. This is a really good week to consider fasting. Not because it's a good week to try to get something from God, but because 
There's a call during this Holy Week to walk with the Lord Jesus along the route into Jerusalem. We need to experience with Jesus the joy of hearing his praises and the grief of knowing that those praises don't last. We need to be so united to him, so in tune with his heart, that it's like we're walking with him all throughout Holy Week. Through his last week of teaching, through his last Passover meal, through his agonizing prayer in the garden, through his betrayals and his denials, the scourgings and the crucifixion and the burial. In our evening Good Friday service, we will sing the hymn, O Come and Mourn with Me a While. It goes like this, O come and mourn with me a while, O come ye to the Savior's side. O come together, let us mourn, Jesus our Lord is crucified. And that is what the discipline of fasting is all about. By fasting, we cultivate the courage to care enough about evil and injustice and death to actually grieve over it. Before Jesus began his ministry, as we read in Luke, two things happened. He was baptized and he experienced his father's pleasure over him. This is my son, I love him, I'm well pleased in him. And then secondly, the spirit led him into the wilderness so that Jesus had to look evil in the eye for 40 days. We read this, I think, and and it sounds like maybe the temptation all comes at the end of the experience. But Luke says that he was led into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. When Jesus confronts, when he looks evil in the eye, for him... As God in a body, it is the most natural thing in the world for him to grieve and to bring his body into conformity with his heart as he stares at the wicked forces that have tried to destroy his father's good world and his father's image bearers. And so if you and I want to respond to Jesus' call, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Then we need to see that that call is the call not just to come with him when it's time to feast. It is that. But it's also the call to come to his side when grief calls us to fast with him. After his fast and his confrontation with evil, In the desert, Luke says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. After the cries, crucify him, and his death on the cross and his burial, Jesus rose in majesty and returned to his Father's glory. Do you see the shape of this experience? It's humiliation and exaltation. It's feasting, sorry, it's fasting and it's feasting. After darkness, light. After death, life. After sin and sorrow and grief, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Just like with all of these disciplines, the point is, after all, not fasting. The point is to experience our lives as they really are, hidden 
in God with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go with him through the valley of the shadow of death. And we feast with him and have our heads anointed with him and have our cups filled with him. We go into the desert and confront evil with grief and fasting. And then we go with him in the power of the spirit to do what we've been made to do, to restore some semblance of truth and goodness and beauty. We go with him to Calvary and die with him. And then we rise with him and are seated with him in glory. We fast with him. And having fasted with him, our feast is made all the sweeter with him. Friends, our Savior has done it all for us. But he also calls us now to go with him. Sorrow may last for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Weeping turns to laughter. Swords are turned to plowshares. Justice, in the face of injustice, will one day roll down. My prayer is that you and I will experience the closeness of Christ this holy week in the valley of the shadow. And then on Sunday, when we experience once again how we are raised with him, we will experience once again the precious new life that we have with him seated at his Father's right hand, even now, in glory. Heavenly Father, we pray for some taste of this experience. We'll gather around the table of your Son in a few moments. And when we do, we pray that we would taste both the bitterness and the sweetness of his suffering and death and his resurrected glory. And that throughout this week and throughout all of our lives, we would walk through, through the valley with Jesus And that ultimately we would be exalted with him. And that along the way you would give us some foretaste of the great feast to come when our fast is broken once and for all and where rejoicing wins the day. Prepare us for the sweetness of that day even through our fasting with Christ. And we ask this all together in his name. Amen.